0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity. Financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at Fidelity.com/slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSC S I P C From
1: the Newsroom of the Washington Post.
2: Post. This is Cleveland with the Washington
3: Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September eleventh. Today, how warming oceans are transforming the globe, a narrowed field for Thursday's debate, and a potentially habitable planet, one hundred and ten light years away.
2: Well, we've taken to calling it around here the blob. The blob. Yes, the blob. Uh, it's so this is kind a of a big what blob it looks like on of the warm map. Warm water. It would be the third blob that, that's been. Uh, talked about that I know of. There's a cold blob south of Greenland. There was a warm blob off the California coast that everyone called the blob. We called the Greenland, Greenland one the cold blob, and this is the, I don't know, this is the South Atlantic blob.
3: Um, okay, who are you and what do you do?
2: Chris Mooney and I cover climate change at the Washington Post. I'm John Meiskins. I'm a
4: data reporter at the Post focusing on climate.
3: And what is the 2C reporting project?
2: The 2C project is a data-driven series of stories where we look at the globe, we find out the fastest warming places, places that are above a threshold of warming that is double the average, two degrees Celsius. And then we say, well, if there's a lot of warming, something's happening. Let's find out what's happening in these places. So we let the temperature drive the stories.
3: And one of the places that you've seen this rise in temperatures is in Uruguay.
2: That's correct, or more specifically, offshore. This is a change in the oceans, not on the land. Once I saw the the blob, I don't think we called it that at first, but once I saw it, I thought, "Okay, what is it?" And um A lot of reading of scientific papers later, I found out that it has something to do with ocean currents. And then I said, what is it doing? And that required reading a lot more scientific papers. And uh, eventually, I did find a scientist uh, who is in Montevideo called Omar DeFeo. And he has published voluminous studies on the clam. And it turns out that the main theme of the studies is that the warming water has led to their giant population decline.
3: And so, John, how have you been finding the places where these changes in ocean temperature are most dramatic?
4: Well, we've been looking at a series of global temperature data sets that stretch back to the 19th century. We've first of all been calculating what the temperature was before 1900. So we're, we're trying to establish what the temperature was before we as a civilization started burning tons of fossil fuels. So we call this the pre-industrial baseline. Then we look at average temperatures compared to that baseline. So we made a map Showing how these temperatures have changed over the past century, and can, it sh-
3: can I see this map? oh yeah, <laughs> okay, so this is a map of the world, ooh, and it's 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 animated um, and so it starts out, and the ocean looks very light blue in lots of places, and then it's showing the different parts of the ocean getting warmer and getting more more orange and you can see where that orange is concentrated in various parts of the ocean, which I gather is places where it's getting a lot hotter a lot faster. So is this where you went?
2: That's it. I mean, not in the water.
3: That definitely looks like a blob. I was still on the uh, land. (laughs) That is a blob off the coast of Uruguay that is—parts of it are dark orange and parts of it are red. And I feel like the fact that there is a big red blob off the coast of this country (laughs) is— has something to do with this problem.
2: You fly to Montevideo, it's the big city, but the place uh, where we learned that there has already been a noticeable change is actually quite far from that. It's uh, all the way almost to the border of Brazil, probably 200 miles to the beaches of Barra del Chui.
1: It's primarily a vacation spot for Brazilians and some folks from Montevideo in the summer, but. For the rest of the year, the locals are mostly almayeros, which are clamors. I'm Carolyn Van Houten. I'm a staff photojournalist at the Washington Post. The main problem that they're having right now is the wind bringing the water in and not allowing the clams to be gathered. And then it's warm water that's coming in, so it's kind of cooking the clams. They're in shells. The weather was really bad, and we got to see what the clamors are dealing with. Um, and then... Uh, and then the weather cleared up and the next morning we went out on that same beach and found a lot of stray dogs um, some beautiful morning light and then also uh, dead yellow clam shells So the Rocha family um, uh, were one of the main families that we followed. And they're, they would go out in uh, multiple generations of the family would go out all together. And I think what's incredible about the, the clamming is that the steps basically are you, you have to know what you're looking for, which is, it, it's an art form.
2: They can sort of sense by looking at the sand and the surf where the clams are likely to be.
1: And Mr. Rocha uh, would go out with a a shovel and a bucket.
2: And so I just watched him, like, sometimes, I don't know why, suddenly they stop and dig. And sometimes they can see these sort of little air holes that are the clams' uh, mark on the surface.
1: Really quickly, just dig a hole. there's no clams, he would just keep moving. And he moved so fast for an an elderly man. He was just booking it down the beach. And he would dig a hole.
2: And dig about half a foot, foot down and, and start sifting.
1: And if he didn't find anything, he'd fill the sand back in and then drag his shovel along the beach and it would leave a little line behind him, kind of sneaking across the beach. And then he would see another spot that he thought there'd be clams, and he'd just quickly, like, dig. And then if he didn't immediately see something, he'd keep looking at it. And then once he found some, he would dig, like, in a circular pattern all around and then sift through the sand, the wet sand, and pull out the clams.
2: This was their their livelihood, this is what they did, and it's what their parents taught them how to do. And one day, one of them told us it was December, that's the southern hemisphere summer when the water is hottest. In 1994, this fisherman, Ramón Naguero, had uh, collected, he said, 20 buckets uh, just a few days prior, and he walked out on the beach and he saw as he put it, kilometers and kilometers of dead clams. All of them turned black, all of them open on the beach. And we did find a photo of a similar event that's part of the, the wave of mass mortalities that occurred in Argentina. Uh, so you can sort of see it's sort of a, it's a beach, but it's just a huge number of shells everywhere.
3: And so... People think that this was the first instance in which warming temperatures had started to have a catastrophic effect on the clam population.
2: Yeah, basically talking to the the scientists and the, the fishers, uh, it was a catastrophic event of a sort that they didn't expect and they don't remember uh, having <laughs> seen anything like it. It's a cold water species of clam that apparently has its long ancient hereditary origins in the Antarctic. And so it's simply more used to a climate that has cooler water. So the scientists have basically correlated the clam decline uh, and a lot of other things that have happened at the same time with a really quick warm-up of temperatures that have happened in this region. It's not just that the clam's which are the cold water species, of decline. It's that warm water species have come in and sort of taken over. Warm water clams, warm water crabs. Uh, at the same time, the scientists have shown that the fish caught in Uruguay have all shifted towards more tropical species of fish. They've shown that there is a much greater occurrence of these red tides, algal blooms that poison the clams. I mean, you can't eat the clams when there's an algal bloom. And they've shown a massive uptick in ocean heat waves which can be very destructive to all kinds of ocean life. So it's all happening at the same time. It's all tied to the temperature.
3: And how has life changed for fishers there, the fact that the clam population has been so affected by these warming temperatures?
2: Well, there are about, uh, I would say, only a third as many people still trying to catch clams, this sort of very traditional uh, long-time pursuit uh, as they were before, because the thing was the fishery was closed for 14 years. So if this was your source of income, then you had none for a long time. You had to find something else. And so many people did. It has been reopened, although they'll shut it down for entire years sometimes still. But it has been reopened for extremely small quantities. And so it's really heavily regulated because they don't want anything else happening. So it's, it's not something where they can make a full-time living anymore, but sometimes they can get side income. It helps that the clam has been rebranded as a sort of uh, culinary delicacy Hmm. uh, in recent years, and so the clams that they do take uh, sell for much more than they did even just 10 years ago.
3: That Because the clam population that can be harvested is so much more limited than it used to be, it's basically gone from being an every-people food to a, a much more rare food or a more upscale food.
2: Yeah, and that's partly an effect of scarcity and partly an effect of re- remarketing it as something that's really delicious. It turns out that in the early days, the, the largest catches were in the 80s before the population collapsed and the mass mortalities. People often just, they didn't eat it at all. They sold it as bait to catch other fish with.
3: So do we know what is causing this?
2: We have some idea as to what is at least one of the major causes, Scientists have been studying um, hotspots in the ocean, and they've been studying this kind of hotspot, but only really intensively in, I'd say, the last decade. And so this, this hotspot was identified formally in just 2012. Basically, it's a very fast r- warming region that has occurred because of a change in a current called the Brazil Current, and the reason the Brazil current is changed, it's moving south. It moves; it comes from a more equatorial area along the coast of Brazil towards Uruguay and Argentina. The reason it's moving south is it's a current that's driven by winds. And a whole giant circulation of winds is moving south. And that circulation is moving south because the tropics are moving outward. And that's an effect of climate change.
3: It's interesting because I feel like My assumption, you know, we all talk about the ocean getting warmer because of climate change. But my assumption was that that just meant that wherever you were, the temperature would be generally one or two degrees warmer. That any temperature in any part of the ocean would just be a little bit warmer than it used to be. But what you're saying is that these temperature changes are focused in particular parts of the ocean.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The ocean is a a complex place. You've got currents traveling north, south, east, west. You've also got currents going up, down, you know, from the depths um, up and into the depths. And so heat is being transported all over the place to a scientific term. And uh, and as a result, yeah, you're not going to get an even mix.
3: So when we look at these blobs of ocean water that are getting a lot hotter a lot faster. What do they tell us about what might be happening in other parts
2: of the world? Well, they're a sign of what's probably coming for other regions. In general, there's there's several, depending upon which data set you use uh, and which time periods you look at, there's several uh, stretches of ocean, including much of the Arctic Ocean, that uh, get above 2 degrees Celsius. And for a lot of them, we've detected some dramatic changes one of them that shows up, thats not the, the one off the coast of Uruguay, but the one off the coast of the United States, involves another current, the Gulf Stream, and this has been you know, written about a lot, and there have been dramatic alterations of fisheries because of this very warm water, including the lobster population shifting really dramatically northward and giving uh, people in Maine a lot to catch and people in New England not much to catch.
3: And so when you were... In Uruguay, talking to these people about how much their lives have been changed by this change in ocean temperatures, did you feel like this is something that a lot of other parts of the world are going to start experiencing, that people's lives and livelihoods are going to change in similar ways?
2: Yes, and also that I bet it's something that people in many places are already experiencing that we don't even know about yet. Until we started looking uh, at the globe in terms of its hotspots, we didn't know this story at all. And it's not a story that's been widely told. I'm not sure if it's been told at all. So I just wonder what else is already out there.
3: Chris Mooney covers climate change for The Post. John Meiskins is a graphics editor. Carolyn Van Houten is a staff photojournalist. You can find a link to their story at postreports.com. Who are you? What do you do?
5: I'm Dave Weigel. I'm a reporter for The Post, and I edit the trailer newsletter on the campaign. This is a year of the newsletter's existence this week, and it gets into everything that's happened over the last couple of days. So it comes out three times a week, which uh, I think is the perfect number for newsletters. Other people have five, and I think, you know, obviously it's terribly wrong. Except for The Post. Those are all right.
3: <laughs> Except for The
5: Post, yeah. of course.
3: So now that we have reached a a point where we no longer have two debates, we only have one, who is going to be on the stage this time?
5: There are 10 candidates on on stage now. They're the ones who had at least 130,000 unique donations, not donors, but there's a lot of overlap there, and the ones who polled at least 2% in at least four polls. So that is the kind of front-running troika of Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. There are people right behind them, like Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, and better work, and it's people who who made it by a slightly narrower margin, like Julian Castro, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, and Andrew Yang. That's all ten. That was all ten. Good yeah. work. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I didn't forget Andrew Yang because he takes that personally. I guess as he should.
3: <laughs> if you made it to the stage, I'm yeah. sure you're proud of it. I owe
4: you all so much. I was here last year, and on the way to Iowa just this week, I found out that my campaign is going to be on the debate stage in the fall. So thank you all.
3: So what is going to be notable about this debate?
5: Mm -hmm. Well, it is the first one that will put Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden on the same stage. And voters have been denied a look at Warren and Biden as a choice. Uh, Now, I should say all three of the people who are doing the best in the polls, that's, that's Biden, Warren and Sanders, all three are generally popular among Democrats. But there is overlapping support and there's negative support for some of these. So this will be the first time that Warren gets to debate somebody in Joe Biden that she has disagreed with for many years, when she was a Harvard professor and disagreeing with him about the bankruptcy legislation, or when she was a senator and sometimes clashing with the Obama administration. Uh, she also, as I think will be pointed out during the debate, I'll <laughs> well, be surprised if it isn't, uh, Biden, when he was mulling over whether to run in 2015, talked to her about her running for vice president, something that she has not talked about since then. Not that she's afraid to, it just hasn't, hasn't really come up.
3: So for those voters who are basically saying, you know, I could do Joe Biden or I could do Elizabeth Warren or mm-hmm. I could do Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, that this will be an opportunity for them to kind of hold up those two candidates and say, which one do I actually like more when they're next to each other?
5: It will be. And also, Joe Biden has not had great debate performances. His first one where he was taken a little bit unawares by the attacks on him was was markedly bad. The second he kind of treaded water and on the stump, he is he has not been picking supporters up as much as Warren or to an extent Sanders has for just like the objective reason. He is not quite as commanding a speaker in his late 70s. He's kind of a little more searching and not as crisp as Warren is. And you hear that from voters all the time.
3: Well, so you mentioned the dynamic that we saw during the last couple of debates where it seemed like whatever stage Joe Biden was on was a stage where everyone else was trying to attack
4: him. Mr. Vice President. Vice President Biden.
0: I want to address uh, Vice President Biden directly.
3: Middle
2: ground solutions like the vice president has proposed.
3: Are we going to see the same dynamic this time where it's everyone versus Joe Biden? Or now that you have Elizabeth Warren and Sanders, who are also leading candidates in the polls, are they going to get some of these attacks too and kind of divert some of the pressure away from Joe Biden?
5: I don't think the alchemy works the same way in this debate because there are not five stragglers who think that they're going to burst into the top by attacking a frontrunner. The debates you might see instead would be about the saleability politically or the realism of a couple of different plans. So, Beto O'Rourke, who has fallen out of the discussion quite a bit nationally, even after the El Paso shooting, he didn't really take up in polls. He just got attention. He came out very quickly on mandatory buybacks of assault weapons, which is a position that Kamala Harris has has agreed to. It's a very new democratic litmus test. You have Sanders and uh, Warren have both come out for banning all fracking, a position not shared by other candidates. And you have... In Biden, the candidate who has rolled out a couple of policy positions but then not talked a ton about them on the trail.
3: What do you think are the issues that have gotten more attention in the couple months since we last had a debate mm-hmm. and that you expect, especially because this is a smaller field, people will have more time to be able to talk, that you think will will be honed in on by candidates mm. or asked about by moderators?
5: Sanders, since the last debate, has rolled out a lot more specifics on his policies. There was a, I think a, they never admitted it out loud, but a sense that Warren climbed in part because Sanders was seen as running on the same stuff he did four years ago, and she had newer, more compact ideas, uh, not means-tested, not minimal, big ideas that were new. So he's rolled out more than that, and he's actually moved further to the left than he ran in 2016. Uh, he's for. I think, basically twice as much federal spending for his plans than he was back then. And some of that's playing with the Trump tax cut, some of it isn't. In terms of the big issues, there has been more movement to the left in the party on environmental issues, on climate change, on guns than before. And one thing that, honestly, a lot of Democrats talked about but didn't really play out yet is, oh, after the first debate, these guys have agreed to things that are going to be so unpopular. Actually, Democrats are all leading Trump by about as much or more than they did Uh, when they first debated in Miami. But there still is that (laughs) reflexive Democratic response. If we're agreeing to something new that has not been poll tested, it's not 80 percent, we should be panicking about it.
3: We've also seen some candidates in recent weeks trying to make the case that voters shouldn't be afraid of voting for them. And they actually yeah. use the word afraid or fear. They shouldn't be afraid of voting for them just because they think that someone else is more likely to beat Trump. Mm-hmm. They should vote for the person that they're most aligned with, not the the person who has the best electability chance or whatever. Mm-hmm. How do you think that we have seen that play out? And how do you feel like that might get communicated in the debate?
5: Well, that's always a byword for for Joe Biden. Everyone who talks about we can't just vote, vote for a candidate that we're because of we're, we're afraid, that's usually Warren speaking.
3: I get it. There is a lot at stake and people are scared. But we can't choose a candidate we don't believe in just because we're too scared to do anything else.
0: I am not afraid. And for Democrats to win, you can't be afraid either.
5: You see a lot of campaigns kind of waiting with a trapeze net for Biden supporters because they they need two things to happen. One, that positive normative thing where people decide, oh, i I like Elizabeth Warren, maybe she can win. One, the negative thing, where there start to be questions about Joe Biden's smallish crowds, the speeches that that aren't that compelling, and some of the mistakes. Democrats, if they become worried about this guy going up against Trump, if they think it's going to be a campaign where every week he makes a bunch of mistakes and distracts from Trump, they need people to think that without necessarily saying that.
3: And what about these candidates, you know, Kamala yeah. Harris, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, people who have had moments during the campaign so far where where they got some more attention, um, but haven't seemed to break into that top level?
5: They're not, I would say, do or die in this debate. A couple of things are coming up. One, there's this debate, and then in two weeks they're gonna have the next fundraising quarter over. Some of them will have not raised as much money as, as it really takes to compete across this map. But this debate is, I'd say, the stakes are less high than they were in Detroit, where people who have now been kicked off the stage were really throwing everything they had. I think for every other candidate who was not in that that top three, it is just a crusade to show that they are electable. I think the challenge for Andrew Yang is the same as Kamala Harris, of just connect to that Democrat who says, well, I like Joe Biden. He seems kind of old. This alternative looks better than one of the more left-wing alternatives.
3: I want to talk. Just a little bit about what's happening beyond the debates, too. Obviously, you're traveling around the country talking to a lot of voters, many of whom will be watching the debate this week. What do you hear from them about what they want to see and where they're at in the campaign so far? Are we still at this stage where folks are still like, I'm getting to know all the candidates, I'm trying to see what they're about? Or are you hearing more from people— I have my picks. I've started to make decisions. I'm kind of finalizing my two or three candidates and going from there.
5: Well, you definitely hear people limiting their picks and saying they have a top three or top five. And some candidates have acknowledged that, fully speaking, and say, no, I just want to be in your top three or top five, which matters a lot in Iowa. I mean, the Iowa caucus process, you go in, you're supporting somebody, they don't get it, and you cross the room for your number two or your number three. So you've heard that for a while. You've heard exasperation with a lot of these candidates. People don't conceal their groans when they're at an event and are told there are seven more people who need to speak. So there's been a lot of ruling out of the 1% candidates already. The tug of war that people are having on stage does not reflect with voters who just want to be convinced that, okay, well, if I vote for the person I like the best, would they not blow it? Because I am scared of what happened last time. There still is a real fear, even though polling has shown that Bernie Sanders leads Trump, There is a fear that uh, anything less than the safe choice, the person who would appeal to people in the Midwest, would, uh, would lose the election. That is what you hear from voters. You hear a lot of punditry from voters where they live in Iowa, they live in New Hampshire, but they are trying to imagine what the person they saw in some MSNBC segment in some diner somewhere might vote for. And if they're convinced that person would vote for Biden but not for someone else, they're really not moving.
3: Dave Weigel is a national political reporter for the Post. He writes and edits the trailer newsletter, which covers the ins and outs of the 2020 presidential campaign.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
3: And now, one more thing.
6: If you stood on the surface of the planet k two eighteen b and looked out over the distant horizon, you would see a red sun shining in a hazy sky— You might see clouds up there, you would feel gravity far stronger than what you feel on Earth, and you would be bathed in radiation probably much more intense than what you would experience on our planet. As strange and alien as this place seems, this exoplanet is now considered a really great target to search for life beyond our planet. I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a science reporter at The Post. This week, scientists announced that they've detected evidence that there's water in the atmosphere of this planet, k two eighteen b It's an exoplanet 110 light-years away from Earth, and it's a rocky planet. It's not a gas giant like Jupiter. It's a terrestrial planet like Earth with a solid surface. And if there's water in the atmosphere, which we know, then there could be water on the surface. So this planet is in the constellation Leo. It's orbiting a small red dwarf star. So that's a cool, dim star, a lot smaller than our sun. And the planet orbits very close to its star. So it only takes 33 days to complete an orbit. But because this star is rather cool and the planet is rather close, that means the planet is actually in its star's habitable zone. It's in the right temperature zone for there potentially to be liquid water on the surface. There's a couple of different ideas for what the atmosphere li- might be like. We know it has water in it, but is that water condensed into clouds or is that water sort of spread very thinly? That's we're not sure about yet. The atmosphere could just be mostly hydrogen, which, you know, is not a very big part of our atmosphere, or there could be other molecules in it, like nitrogen, which is a huge part of our atmosphere, or carbon dioxide, which is in Mars's atmosphere. Um, these are all things that we're still sort of trying to figure out. So this planet is not a vacation destination. It's 110 light years away, so no human spacecraft is getting there anytime soon. It's also, red dwarfs are notoriously active um, in terms of the radiation that would be pretty unpleasant for us to live on. But scientists are still really excited about it, and not just because you know it has this potential for habitability, but being able to probe The atmosphere of another planet around another sun helps us understand our own planet and our own solar system. It gives us a sense of what the universe is like, and then we can figure out better how we fit into it.
3: Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And shout out to one listener who goes by the real Minchie. He and I had a great back and forth on Twitter over a story that we aired a few days ago about artificial intelligence that's used to help people talk to their deceased loved ones. I thought the idea was creepy. Minchie disagreed. He said, quote, I am 42 years old. I lost my father at three and a half, and I don't remember much of him. I think it would be pretty neat to say, hey, Dad, how did you meet Mom into a speaker and hear his story? Minchie, thank you for sharing your perspective. If you've got thoughts on a story, share them with us on Twitter. Use the hashtag #PostReports and feel free to tag my handle. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity personalized planning and advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. The
5: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters.